This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the show before the show, the official podcast of minor league baseball. I am Sam Dykstra again, introing this week because I am all alone. No, I'm not. I'm actually joined by my two colleagues again this week. If you listen to our uh, podcast earlier this week, it was just me for a lot of it. Uh, we were a little bit of delayed because of international issues for very good reasons. And that is because, as I said on the show, Tyler Mon was in Taiwan calling the World Baseball Classic, and now he is back with us. He's in Denver, but he is back now with us on the podcast alongside Benjamin Hill, who's also here sitting to my left. Tyler, welcome back. How was the trip? I think we all know how the trip went because we could literally hear you the entire time. You could. You could see me and hear me and the magic of television. Uh, I just want to say you, sir, have done a phenomenal job the last two episodes introing this show before the show. Although... Uh, Ben and I did not slander you. We know no, you what did. you were doing in Florida. Oh, my lawyer said you did. And you, you, know. you haven't received your, your, your notice, and it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be served uh, soon. Just because you were out of the country doesn't mean you can es- escape the law. I guess we'll find out. I, actually, I'm pretty sure it's exactly what being out of the country means, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, from what from what movies and TV have taught me. Um, yeah, man, it was it was great. Uh, we wrapped up Pool A in a wild five way tie between all the teams out in in Pool A. We went into it saying like, man, I think this is the most evenly matched pool of them all for the opening round of the World Baseball Classic. And then everybody literally split 10 games that we did. Uh, but it was amazing. The atmosphere was incredible. Saw some really good prospect talent. Uh, saw some terrific games of baseball, ate some good food, had a lot of fun on TV. Um, you know, uh, it was, it was a dream, man. It was, uh, it was as cool as anything I've literally ever done in my life. It was awesome. Yeah. And I mean, just watching it, that was one of my favorite pools to watch because the atmosphere was so insane, especially the night games, which were morning games for us, but it, it seemed like the place was packed seeing, especially the Yu Chang call that you had was like instantly one of the highlights of the tournament because of what Yu Chang did, but also the way you worked the crowd for that. Kind of take us through that moment and what it's like calling such a big moment in a home city, in a home country like that for a guy who Yu Chang had his own interesting story going into the tourney. Yeah, that's really the crazy thing was Yu Chang became the biggest storyline uh, of Pool A, and he was essentially uh not going to be on that team when when everything first came out uh he back in january had requested to not be selected for the team uh because he was trying to fight for a, a job in uh red sox camp and didn't want to be distracted you know i guess by uh being picked for the world baseball classic team and people freaked out and part of the reason they freaked out is yu chang in 2019 played in the Asian baseball championships for Chinese Taipei, which is the name of the team that uh, competes for the Island of Taiwan. And um, as a token for winning that 
he was granted um, an exemption, essentially, from his compulsory military service. So he only served like nine days of what should have been a four-month military service. But it was on the condition that he continued to play for the national team for the next five years. So when he asked to not be selected, people kind of lost it. And sort of understandably so. Um, but it was back-to-back nights in which uh, Chinese Taipei had these mammoth crowds. They played Friday and Saturday night against Italy and then against the Netherlands. And the game against Italy, I thought, man, how is anything going to top that? We had three homers in that in that one. Uh, Tso Wei Lin, um, Yu Chang, and then Gungguan Giligalau, my favorite name in the history of humanity. Uh, and they hit homers and, and led that team to a win. And it was a huge win because Chinese Taipei had lost their first game. And then the next night, Yu Chang hits this grand slam, and I'm not sure I'll ever experience a moment that electric for the rest of my life. It was, you know, 19,000 people, but a decibel reader in the stadium hit 118, which is essentially, as I was reading online, basically the same as standing next to a fire truck uh, with its sirens blaring. Um, That's 19,000 people in an open air stadium got that loud at that moment. And it was just the most electric, um, earth-moving kind of moment that I could have imagined. And what sort of you said, you know, take us through the the call in the moment. Two one, a swing and another drive to deep left center field. Yu Chang has done it again. It's really weird because I actually remember, and I was telling a friend of the show and host of Ghosts of the Miners, Josh Jackson, about this the other day. I weirdly remember my mental process through like that entire call, which is very strange. But when that ball came off the bat, the first few days in Taiwan, we had seen a lot of stuff get hit to left, especially, but to left center as well, that just died. There was a lot of wind coming in from left and the ball would just die. And uh, so Xander Bogarts hit a game, a home run in uh, one of the day games. And I noted on the call, it was the first home run to left in a day game and got roasted on the internet because out of context, that sounds like an insane thing to say, but that ballpark was playing really difficult for right-handed hitters. So Yu Chang gets into this ball and at the start of the call, I didn't know how well he had hit it. So when I started that, I think I was pretty pedestrian sounding at the beginning, but I looked out in the outfield and jerks and Profar's on left and Roger Bernadina's in center. And I noticed that Profar wasn't even moving and Bernadina was barely kind of getting himself going towards center field. And I thought to myself like, Oh, he might've gotten this. So in my head, I thought you have to take this up now, but you can't take it up from zero to a hundred all at once. You have to take it up in stages. So you can hear in the call that I kind of progressively everything I say get a little bit more and more hyped. And the way I described it uh, to our producer from MLB Network, Chris Bracey, is at the last second, because um, my call ends with Yu Chang has done it again because he homered the night before. Um, the last second of that call, I thought to myself, when I say again, do I end that with my voice going down or with my voice going up? And ordinarily to end a highlight, your voice goes down. Uh, but I just felt like the moment called for ending on my voice going up and it sort of functioned as, and this is what I said to our producer, that that was like the launch of the firework. And then when I stopped talking and the crowd went nuts, that was like the firework exploding. And it just played so well because of that crowd. Like they were so incredible from night to night and uh, the passion that they brought, the chants, the drums, the songs, um, you know, the first night they lost to Panama 12-5. They were getting waxed late in that game. 
and they got a home run and instantly they were back at a 10. Uh, the passion from, from that fan base and especially being the first pool to start, they just reintroduced the world baseball classic to fans and uh, reintroduced Taiwanese baseball to fans. And it was something that I am uh, forever extremely proud to have been a part of. And uh, yeah, I don't know if, if I'll ever experience something like that again. And I said on the air, you know, there are like what seven plus billion people on the planet right now. I don't know if a human being was higher in that moment than you Chang was in that moment, being the hero in front of his home crowd and, uh, and essentially winning that game for his team. So it was, it was quite a night. It was the highlight of a, of a week full of highlights. Now, Tyler, obviously you were spending the bulk of your time at the ballpark and baseball was the reason you were there, but you know, I've never been to Taiwan and I imagine a lot of our listeners have not, have not been there as well. So, you know, what was it just like as a country to visit and the little routines you got into in the terms of the hotels or transportation or restaurants or, you know, just little cultural differences you noticed what stood out about just being in this foreign country? Yeah, you know, it was really cool. I've been to Taiwan twice before for other baseball events and nothing nearly on the the scope or the scale of the, the classic. And what I noticed this time around was that fans were everywhere. Uh, we stayed in a hotel that was probably a 10-minute drive from the ballpark, but there was a group of fans outside the hotel every single day from the morning we walked out or from the, the moment we walked out in the morning to the moment we got back at night. There were people there. And they just wanted to see you and they just wanted to say hello and welcome to Taiwan. And they'd ask for an autograph from somebody like my broadcast uh, color analyst, Ryan Roland Smith, who played there uh, for part of one season. And um, they were so polite and so respectful, but they were so excited about having an event uh, in that city, in their homeland that they could show off to the world. And it was so infectious and especially, you know, this time three years ago, we were all shut in our houses. The world was closed down and none of us had any idea of what things would look like going forward. And to be back in a place where you could share your mutual love of something like baseball with people like those fans in Taiwan was amazing. Um, you know, Ryan and I would go for coffee every morning before we headed to the ballpark and just walking down the street and seeing about people going about their days in a, a different city, in a different country, in a different part of the world. Um, you know, the the way that the sun feels a little different when you wake up somewhere new or the smells in a different city um, are always fascinating to me. And uh, the ballpark experience was incredible. In Asia and in Latin America, this is really common too. Most stadiums will allow local vendors to kind of set up a food stand or a, a truck or, you know, a merchandise table or whatever on the ballpark grounds. So you can walk into sort of the entry plaza area at Taijung Intercontinental Baseball Stadium. There are just little food tents that just line the whole plaza. So you can try, you know, fried squid. Um, you can have dumplings. You can have bubble tea. You can have all these different things that are local delicacies, and you can get them from local vendors. And I thought that was so cool. Um, but just seeing the the passion that they had, not only for their team, but for the, the sport of baseball. The last game that we have, uh, Italy versus the Netherlands, which was essentially a play-in game, uh, especially for the Netherlands, that was, you know, a crowd of almost 7,000 people for two teams that are nowhere near where they're playing. Uh, and that was amazing. And the enthusiasm that they had, uh, that the fans brought for every single game, it's just the, I noted this on a broadcast, the slogan for the very first World Baseball Classic was baseball spoken here. And it just felt like this was a reminder of that. Of Even though I might not be able to have a conversation with these people in their native language, 
we still all speak the same language of the thing that we love. Uh, and that was really neat. And having a ballpark experience in a place like that and, you know, the the different smells and the different sights and different sounds is um, if you ever get a chance to go to another country and watch baseball, it is certainly not an experience you'll regret. Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, an experience for all of us watching at home. And I know I said this on the pod that came out earlier this week, and I've said it to you before. And now I'm going to say it to your face. How proud we all are of you that you were the, the guy who got to do all that. Oh, he said it to your face. I said it to your face. You had to look me in the you face. Did, you did say that, like you were going to say something threatening. Yeah. Like yeah. I said this on the podcast. Now I'm going to say it to your I'm face. Say it to your face. Oh, man, I, yeah, I am going to sue you. Uh, um, no, we're just all super proud that it was you, you who got buddy. to call it call those games and take us through it because they were exciting on their own. They would have been dramatic and all that kind of stuff, but like knowing it was you and and you taking those moments, like we were talking about that, you Chang Homer, it's your pin tweet now. So for yep. anybody who hasn't seen it or hasn't heard you call it, check out Tyler Mon's Twitter page at Tyler Mon. Uh, it'll be the first tweet you see and make sure you listen to that voice and take notes. If you're trying to be a broadcaster yourself, I don't uh, just don't come that. for Tyler's job. Be like, why, why change he, your name to Tyler Juan so because then you can be T Juan instead of T Mon T Juan. Like, well, you know what you could have gone with is Taiwan because my nickname is Ty. Could have gone with Taiwan. There we go. There we go. I messed up that joke. Could have, but you didn't. Yeah, I messed up that joke. Here we are. So anyway, we have a fun interview coming off of this. We do a very fun interview. Ben, you want to intro that for us? Yeah, we talked to our good pal, Tim Haggerty, author of the forthcoming Tales from the Dugout. And we're going to talk to him, to Tim, about this book, which is a really, uh, it's a really fun book. And we had a lot of fun talking to him about it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here on the show before the show podcast, we are joined by Tim Haggerty, broadcaster for the El Paso Chihuahuas, and more importantly for our purposes right now, the author of the brand new book, or fairly new, let's just call it brand new, Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. Tim, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, Ben. I'm a fan of all three of you, so uh, exciting to be on. And as far as your intro, the book comes out March 28th, so it is brand new. It is brand new. You know, I saw you on MLB Network a couple of weeks ago, and I just, you know, in my mind, this book is, is existed for a while. I was totally forgetting that the, you know, the common men and women do not yet have access. March 28th, this book comes out, and uh, it's a really fun one. As, I mean, the, the subtitle lays it out, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Anecdotes from Minor League Baseball. Um, Tim, you were obviously well told, or you are a great candidate to put this book together, not only because you've been broadcasting since 2004, but um, you've been writing about baseball and baseball history and quirky stories uh, for quite some time. And I've always enjoyed uh, that line of work of yours. Uh, So if you first could go in a little bit to, to that, how did you get started writing about 
you know, minor league baseball, the history and all the absurd, weird, strange things you find there. It is and has always been my favorite part about baseball is the crazy, unusual stories that happen. I think it's the sport that has the most and best stories to it. As far as this project and how it got started, uh, when researching something else, I've always loved researching baseball history. And when looking into something else, uh, I found this newspaper article from the 1880s that a Texas League game in Austin got delayed when a wild bull ran on the field. And I was just stunned. I wanted to know everything about this, the descriptions of why there was a wild bull near the stadium, what kind of damage it did. And then I thought to myself, well, I do this for a living. And if I've never heard this story, the odds are most fans haven't either. Uh, So I began a document compiling stories of the past and present. Got to a point where I had 1,100 stories, didn't really know what to do with it. And one day I was walking by my wife's cookbook and it said 1,001 recipes. And I thought, that's it. That's the number. Uh, So at that point, compiled it and whittled it down and was able to get a book deal and uh, turned out great. Yeah, it's a real fun book to read. Um, You know, when you when you fit 1,001 different anecdotes into a single book, you probably don't have much more than a hundred words or so about each uh, about each little incident or anecdote here. Sometimes even less. Um, was this an ex- this must have been an exercise in brevity and really whittling down these stories? Because reading it today on the subway in to work, there were a lot of things that I was just like, "Oh, I want to know more about that." But also to have a book that's accessible to the average reader and doesn't expand to one thousand and one pages. I guess you had to be a very uh, judici- judici- judicious editor. See, I, I don't speak on a mic for, li- for a living such as uh, Tim does. You're exactly right. Um, from the beginning, I wanted it to have illustrations as well. And I think the publisher, Cider Mill Press, did a great job with that, with the layout. There's a lot of cartoonish illustrations in there. So to have a thousand one stories and the illustrations, you're right. The stories had to be short and sweet. I was recently on a different show and the host... She joked to me, I love this book because the stories are like tweets. Uh, Some of them are just a sentence or two each, as you're describing. Uh, Each has a catchy headline at the top. But you're right. To pack in that many stories, I had to make them pretty brief and get to the point. And when you were organizing this, I mean, just looking at the table of contents right now, it's broken down by teams and ballparks, batters and runners, pitchers and fielders, managers and executives, umpires and leagues, fans and tickets, nature and wildlife, and the best of the rest. Did you have those categories in mind ahead of time and then try to find things to fill up those categories? Or was it just, I'm going to get a thousand one stories and find the categories later? It was the second one. I wanted to compile as many stories as possible, get to that point and then decide what to do with it. So I got to about 1,100 stories, and then it was a matter of either merging some or cutting some out. For example, there was an umpire in 1907 who was arrested for using foul language during a game. And then in the 1930s, there was a player who was arrested for using foul language during a game. I merged those two and made them one story. And by the way, I said not ejected, but arrested. These guys were arrested for (laughs) saying a bad word during the game. Um, Very normal. Very normal use of the judicial system. (laughs) Exactly. Priorities. So, yeah, from there, um, as you just described, Sam, outline those chapters. But then there was a bunch that just didn't really have a home. So that's when we came up with the best of the rest. Those are the ones that are just so crazy that there really wasn't a category for them. And as you're going through these, you're talking about like some of these are tweet, you know, length, the length of a tweet, essentially. 
Was there anyone that you thought like, hey, this is one I could pull out one or two maybe that you could pull out and be like, this is a book on its own? Oh, yeah. Um, the thing that jumps out that really could be a book is just the way umpires were treated in the, I'd say, early 1900s all the way through the 1950s. Many games, they were the only umpire on the field. And this was a wild, almost uh, violent time, to be honest, to be an umpire. The story I've heard on this is that back in the early part of the 1900s, a lot of the men that would go to ball games were laboring workers. They worked at a mine or a construction site. They had these grueling jobs. And during that time, you really couldn't mouth off to your boss. But when you went to the ballpark, that was the one time that you had permission to yell at an authority figure. So there's a story in 1920 in Daytona Beach. And a group of fans got so mad at the umpire, this guy, Tiny Parker, that they threw him off a bridge into a river outside the stadium. And this guy, Tiny Parker, just kind of accepted this was part of the job. He showed up the next day and umpired the next game. And the fans were so impressed by that that he showed up the next day and they probably felt some guilt that they took up a collection and bought him some new umpiring gear because his previous gear was soaking wet in the Halifax River. Um, it's the least you can do, guys, if you throw an umpire into a river is to buy him some new gear. I was going to say maybe like a whole new wardrobe, maybe like right. I, it's not the gear that I would want. I want a, a new suit to wear. <laughs> church on sunday especially like, because like back in that era people owned like four items of clothing you know what i mean like you wore the same exact thing every day they, yeah they couldn't buy this guy like a new cardigan yeah. and, and was tiny one of those ironic nicknames was this guy like pretty hefty and it was probably tough to throw him off a bridge if so my guess is he was a bigger guy exactly <laughs> i was uh thinking of two questions that i was very excited about asking the first of which was going to be if you're going to pull one of these stories and make it into its own book, what would it be? And the second one was going to be, Tim, how about the way umpires were treated back in the day? And then wow. you guys covered those both perfectly. The thing that I think uh, really stands out also, and if you're not following Tim on, on social media, uh, you need to follow him on Twitter because Tim will come across these incredible stories and he'll post uh, the old you know newspaper clippings of what things were like um, you know when they were reported back in the day. And Tim's on Twitter at TD Haggerty. Um, one of the things that always seems to pop up in addition to like, ah, the umpire was like, you know, hogtied and thrown onto a train car and was sent out of town never to be seen again. The other thing that's wild to me, Tim, is that teams, minor league baseball teams had live animal mascots regularly and not like, ah, this is somebody's plucky pooch and these are the, the new fountain town basset hounds or whatever. They'd have like bears and monkeys and whatever. Like what are the most insane live mascot stories that you come across? So Tyler, you're a Coloradoan, right? Coloradan? I am. I yeah. am. Um, so you'll like this one. In 1970, the AAA Denver Bears, of course, pre-Rockies, Denver had a AAA team for a long, long time. And in 1970, the Denver Bears acquired a live bear <laughs> and put it in a cage in the right field stands with a sign on it. In the 1970s. Said, yes, exactly. Wow. I mean... Because I've imagine. seen pictures of old Denver Bears. Game. They were formerly known as the Denver Grizzlies, and then they were the Denver Bears. And I've seen pictures of them with live bears in, like, 1911. I didn't realize that in the <laughs> 1970s they were still doing this. Exactly. I mean, you had to have an employee there to make sure kids aren't sticking their hand in the cage, I would hope. Um, 
I'd really so like to know one. what the salary requirement was uh, for the person who was the bear minder. That's a nice minor league front office job. Like, all right, you're going to sell uh, group tickets, and also you get to hang out by the bear cage and make sure nobody gets mauled. Yeah, I think that's covered by other tasks maybe required. Yeah, other duties as assigned. As other duties as assigned. Yeah. And, and I do assigned. remember reading uh, San Francisco Seals uh, at one point in the the old San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League. They had a seal on the premises at one point. Uh, I remember reading that at one point. Yeah, it was, it was a weird time. We talk about minor league baseball being weird these days, but as Tim's book shows, it was a lot weirder back then. Yeah, and, and that's a great example, Ben, of the seal. Uh, another live animal. In 1909, Class A New Orleans Pelicans game, they had a mascot named Henry the Chimpanzee. And as Tyler mentioned earlier, this is not a furry costume chimpanzee. This is a live monkey. And he somehow breaks out of his cage, ran on the field, and chased players around. So the game was delayed a few minutes when a monkey ran around on the field. My favorite element of that is that the chimpanzee was the mascot for a team named the Pelicans. Not like, ah, well, we're the chimps, the New Orleans chimps. Like, they're <laughs> named after a bird, and they're like, I don't know, should we get a monkey? What would, that, what would that be like? Would that bring people out, put butts in the seats? So that's an exact example of what would happen. Sometimes you just see these brief stories, and I'd want to know the same thing. Why did this team have a monkey mascot? And sometimes you just run into a dead end trying to find the background on that. There is one. And I did put it in the book, despite efforts to find more details. There was a baseball guide in 1911, I think, and it talked about how this player showed up to the annual winter convention, you know, a winter meetings type of that era, and was threatening a lawsuit because he said that his team hypnotized him and convinced him that they paid him, but that his record showed he was never paid. And when I read this, I thought, <laughs> I need to know the player, I need to know the team, but I just couldn't find anything else. But I thought the story is so good. So I just wrote around it in a way that said, in 1911, a player, you know, from a professional baseball team said this. I am absolutely going to the next winter meetings and telling people that Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill did that to me. I just want you, <laughs> just want you all to know that in the next winter meetings, I'm going to be like, I was supposed to get this check from Sam and Ben. It never cleared. Um, Tim, ballparks were also really interesting and really weird for a long time, early uh, in the 20th century, late in the 19th century. Did you find anything specifically about like, you know, this team played in a in a converted horse lot uh, or something strange that you would never expect to to find a baseball game. But facilities wise, they at least attempted to make something work. Absolutely. I'm thinking of the ballpark in Scranton. Um, they had a really unique outfield fence. Let me get the exact note here. I'm almost there. Um, I read this today. I read this earlier today. Yeah. So they. Their outfield fence was made of old railroad boxcars. Cool. So that was a good ballpark one. Yeah, Artillery that actually Park. Sounds awesome. Artillery, Artillery Park. Park. Right here on page 15. <laughs> That's, uh, I feel like that would be a very scenic ballpark. That'd be a really cool way. I feel like the modern equivalent of that is like shipping containers. I'd go check out a game in a boxcar outfield ballpark. Yeah, and today's team awesome. is named the Rail Riders. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, like that seems very fitting. Bring it back. So a couple other good ballpark stories in the 1950s. And again, this is, you know, we're not talking about 1800s, 1950s, somewhat fairly recent. Uh, the Welch Miners in West Virginia had a cement sidewalk. They went through their left field grass in fair territory. Imagine a prospect running over a sidewalk. <laughs> That's an easy, <laughs> easy place to track down fly balls. 
especially if you're wearing spikes and then all of a sudden like you've got that that gritty scratchy sound of like when you have metal shoes on walking around on uh on concrete that's awful um the uh <laughs> baseball's interminable ability to just like try to play anywhere is always fascinating to me you said when we started that you had 1100 stories and you whittled them down what was the toughest one to cut was it like fairly easy that you knew there were some that either were going to be too difficult to research or some that probably just didn't have the legs to get put in and those ones obviously i assume were fairly easy to cut out were there any that you kind of agonized over of like i want people to know this story but it just doesn't fit for sure there were some stories that were so good but the facts just didn't add up upon trying to get second sources that I had to trim them. Baseball Digest, which has archives available online that goes all the way back to the 1940s, they used to interview players, and players would just tell these wild stories. You know, you grab a Major League veteran in 1960, and you'd say, well, in 1945, I was in Albany, and this happened. Of course, back then, they don't have the internet, and they just print it. Whereas now, I'm able to see, well, okay, on that guy's baseball reference page, he wasn't in Albany in 1945. He was there in 1944. And if I just didn't have the facts to back it up, it didn't feel right to put it in. But that left me with some tough decisions as well, where if you did have a good source, but the story didn't seem quite believable. For example, in the 1800s, uh, 1890s, there was a Pennsylvania state game. And allegedly, this team ran out of bats. So a batter walked over and grabbed an axe because every dugout just has an axe sitting there. <laughs> um, Very common dugout paraphernalia. Exactly. He claims he takes the axe into the batter's box, takes a swing, hits the ball, and splits it in half. And he claims half of the ball went flying over the fence and the umpire ruled it half of a run. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I love everything about this story. The half of a run part is funny. It's easy to understand, but you guys have covered a bunch of games like I have. That just doesn't sound like it really happened. There's no way. Exactly. There's no way. So I want to believe it, but there's no way. No. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I love this story, but it's just not adding up. So I decided the word reportedly would clear me. So I wrote in there, reportedly this happened. And there are a bunch of newspaper articles that say it did. So I figured that kind of covered me. Yeah, so it made the cut. The axe story made, made the, the cut. cut. No, there's there's a Benism for you. You know what else is also very funny to me about uh, when you hear like these old timey stories? Everybody had such a quick wit back in the day. Like an umpire, you slice a baseball in half, you hit half over the wall, and the umpire's response is half a run. Like that, you were that quick witted umpire, Tiny Jones, whatever your name was, Parker. Parker, <laughs> sorry, Tiny. Come on, we we're all big Tiny Parker fans. <laughs> Well, Tim, as you're going through all this stuff, I mean, considering your job is to be a broadcaster, how much are you putting yourself in the shoes of like people who had to call games then? Like imagining what you would have done if you saw a guy walk up with an axe or <laughs> if all of a sudden the, the umpire was being carried off, like how you would cover that in the day. How much are you viewing that through those lenses? For sure. And that especially would come true when I found a great El Paso story. My full-time job, as you guys mentioned in the intro, I'm the broadcaster for the El Paso Chihuahuas. And El Paso has some great history to it. Uh, in 1938, there was a Class D game here, and the home plate umpire took off his mask, put down his chest protector, walked off the field, and never came back. He said, I'm done. So I'd imagine calling that game. And the umpire is to the warning track, and he's gone. <laughs> it's like, um, you're right. There are times where I'd envision what it would be like. And there's even a couple stories where I did have to do that. 
In 2007, I was the broadcaster for AA Mobile, and we were in Montgomery. And Mobile had a pitcher, Matt Elliott, who allowed a game-tying home run. And he got so upset after that half inning that he went into the dugout bathroom and slammed the door in frustration. And it broke the lock, and he locked himself in the bathroom. (laughs) And couldn't come out. He couldn't get out until a half hour after the game ended. Montgomery's fire department had to come knock the door down. Had so he that been, was an unusual thing. I have to thing. ask this question. Had he been lifted from the game already at that point? Or no, did they have no, to like, exactly. make a pitching change because he was locked in the bathroom? And, and that's where the play-by-play part came in because an entire half inning passes. Now it's Mobile's turn to go back in the field again, and there's no pitcher. But there's eight position players. But there's no one warming up. And the manager then, Brett Butler, is literally scratching his head, talking to the umpires, wondering what to do. They had to bring in a new pitcher because he got locked in the bathroom. That's yeah, Is that like an injury replacement? Like, did the new guy get enough time to warm up? Or were they just like, sorry, dude, seven wow. pitches. He's locked in the bathroom. That's not an injury. That's talk that about a weird be, jurisdiction for an umpire. Yeah, probably the umpires feel to treat it like an injury. <laughs> um, but there was a bunch of national media after that one. I think Sports Illustrated said he was locked in. Um, uh, <laughs> was that ben during your stint at Sports Illustrated, Ben? Or <laughs> yeah, but I do. What I was going to say is I do remember writing a blog post about that moment. Um, maybe that was one of the first times I was ever you know, in touch with Tim, who's you know, provided great information uh, through the years for what I do. And, um, you know, the kind of sensibility he has is what leads to a, a book such as 1000 or Tales from the Dugout which features 1,001 separate tales. Um, and even though we've been focusing on the truly more wild, wooly, almost pure anarchy anecdotes of the 19th century, early 20th century, um, like that bathroom story uh, illustrates, um, there's a lot of modern stuff in there as well. Uh, plenty of present day stuff, things related to minor league promotions. And I would like to point out, and we're all waiting for our royalty checks down the line, that myself, Ben Hill, Sam Dykstra sitting to my right and Tyler Mon in Colorado are all listed as sources for this book. You are. I was going to tell you guys that. That's uh, amazing. MIL- yeah. MILB.com. What, what's great is just the archive that you guys have where, for example, I made a note to myself, Brevard County Manatee's first pitches record. And you guys might remember, I think it was 2005. They had this day long record breaking um, promotion where they invited anyone to come over and throw a ceremonial first pitch. And they got up to more than 4,200 first pitches. <laughs> they had local radio stations telling people to peel off the interstate, go to the stadium, throw a pitch, and then go back on the highway. And the best place to find articles like that is MILB.com. So I did put all three of your names in there because just when pinpointing details for a story like that, MILB.com was the best place to, to find it. Um, but you're right, Ben. I really tried to put in a lot of current stories as well. For example, in both 2017 and 2021, the Carolina Mudcats in Zebulon, North Carolina, they decided to play their entire game on the final day of the season using one bat, just one bat for all nine players. Just and they won both of those games. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, just pass it off in the on-deck circle. Whoever needs it next, just keep the line moving. That's impressive, though, to win both the games. Yeah, and that's what you know what, what Ben has done so well with cataloging all of his different minor league ballpark stops. I love unique features of ballparks. So in the book, there's an entry about why the Albuquerque Isotopes have Simpson statues or 
why the Nashville Sounds have a big guitar scoreboard, among other examples like that. And, and Tim, speaking of going to kind of modern examples, I mean, this year is going to be another new year in minor league baseball. And as you're co- covering AAA games, as you're calling them, one thing that's coming is the ABS system and also the challenge system for half the year. Things are going to be split up this year. What are you anticipating about that change, trying to get used to it and calling games differently the first half of the week versus the second half of the week? Leave it to Sam to uh, transition from umpires being thrown into rivers yeah, into like a real, real journalistic question. And now we have robot <laughs> umpires. Yeah, that's... Um, But we know that the water, very bad for robot umpires. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's no coming oh, back from that one. Keep in mind... Down. Tiny the equipment's Parker, definitely more expensive. AI version of Tiny Parker, something to keep in mind. <laughs> <laughs> so last year in the Pacific Coast League, we had the automatic ball strike system. And understandably, many fans weren't aware of that. So it was really funny to be in any ballpark and hear fans shouting at the home plate umpire. They had to be thinking in their head, this is not me <laughs> making this call. Why are you so mad at me? And it reached a point where... Uh, one umpire here in El Paso with a smile at one point actually turned around and pointed to his earpiece at a fan saying, hey, my earpiece is telling me what's a ball and what's a strike. And by the way, these robots are right, you know, 99% of the time. But as far as this year, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. As Sam mentioned, uh, Friday through Sundays, it's the challenge system where each team will get three challenges. Uh, The pitcher, the batter, or the catcher must do it and must do it instantly. You can't look over to the dugout and get advice on whether they should challenge a pitch. I saw one game like this last year. The Pacific Coast League Championship game had this rule in play, and it really was instant. Um, And the thing I'm looking forward to is Las Vegas, where that AAA championship game was. They did a good job of putting up right on their video board the actual moving ball when they replayed what happened and whether or not it clipped the zone. And the public address announcer would announce, as this was happening, the previous pitch is under review. And when the announcer said that, it's like the fans just got so locked in on the video board that I think the challenge system, you know, we talk about it for efficiency, but it actually is a fun fan interaction thing, too. All of a sudden, you're told, okay, something's happening here. And they're almost like rooting for the digital ball as it's approaching the strike zone, whether it's going to hurt or help their team. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. And it is interesting how it's divided up per day of the week, where now a player has to be conscious of what day of the week it is while they're batting, um, which sounds funny. But, you know, you guys know ball players so oftentimes they no, really don't yeah. have to know that. They don't have to <laughs> think in their head what day of the week it is. They're That's just a so really focused on that, that pitcher. Yeah, that is a very good point. Um, all right, Tim, last one from me, and we're going to go back to the fun side. Geez, Sam. Um, this is a very cliche, uh, and a, and a dumb question, but I have to ask it. Do you have a favorite of all the 1001 stories? Is there one that just sticks out to you that you're like, how does the story get any better than that? Probably my favorite is the one that took me the most time to track down the details. I got to talk to participants in 1978. There was a fly ball that disappeared. It was a double a Eastern league game. Bristol is at Jersey city. And there were some big names in this game. Wade Boggs is playing for Bristol, Ricky Henderson for Jersey City. And early in the game, a right-handed batter hit a high fly ball to right field, and the ball vanished. It didn't land in the stands. It didn't go over the fence. It didn't land on the field. And I know it sounds crazy, but I talked to 
an employee who was there. I talked to a player who was on the field and they described it the same way. Everyone was just sort of in disbelief. Uh, I even got to correspond with a fan who was there and said the same thing. So the umpires got together. Understandably, they don't know what the ruling is when a ball disappears. Is there a rule? <laughs> there is now. They called it a double. Okay. Interesting. Um, but I think that's my favorite because it's funny. It's easy to understand. There's some big names involved. And it really was so fun for me to try and track down what day this took place. This was my hobby in the 2017 offseason was just finding out who worked at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey in 1978. And as you guys know from articles you've written, if you dig hard enough, you can find it. Um, that's uh, that's a blessing of social media and the Internet is people are findable now and they're really excited to talk to you. So um, I even got to email with Wade Boggs about that and, and Boggs confirmed it that that the ball vanished. And there was never an explanation. Like they never, ah, we were tearing down the ballpark years later and we found it. Like they're never, this thing just disappeared. No, the one thing I got was that there was reportedly a kid behind the outfield fence who was holding a ball, but they later showed that that was not the game ball. So that was a theory for a while. Weird. One internet commenter told me that David Copperfield is apparently from the Jersey City area. <laughs> Wondered if he made it vanish. <laughs> Yeah, and I and I believe this is the way that there's just so many rabbit holes that go down in minor league baseball. That's the same stadium, I believe, in which Jackie Robinson made his uh, minor league baseball debut on the road as a member of the Montreal Royals. And I've run into that. I don't want to quite say it's a problem, but so many times through the years when I'm writing something, I'm looking, I'm researching one piece of information, and then ten minutes later, you're four levels deep into something else, something else. Uh, but it really is a joy to find that kind of stuff, and that's why this joy, this book, is a joy to read. Uh, because if you like baseball, baseball history, the weirder, quirkier side of it, you've got one thousand and one tales to read about. And uh, I'd recommend listening to Tim as well. Uh, Call El Paso Chihuahuas games on you know MILB TV, uh, you know internet radio, uh, wherever fine El Paso Chihuahuas games are broadcast. Um, and I'm sure Tim you can... really is one of the best in the biz. By the way, if you want to listen to a great broadcaster, tune in to Tim. He's fantastic. Follow him on Twitter as well at TD Haggerty. And also, if you're a minor league baseball writer, you get overjoyed when you're like, I got to cover this El Paso story. That means I can text him. I'm going to have no trouble getting this interview. So he's also fantastic in that regard. That's but seriously, that's... one of the best <laughs> in the business. That is true. So to close, even though we've talked about this book a lot, um, Tim, I'll let you promote it one final time. Where can people get this and uh, just how much will they enjoy it? Well, thank you. It's available on pre-order for Amazon, on Amazon right now and anywhere books are sold. It'll be in stores on March 28th. Um, but I'm told that pre-orders really help momentum. So if you want to help me out, uh, pre-order this as you hear this, and that, that would be a great help. But um, I don't want to brag, so I won't talk about like the stories and the writing. But one thing I will say, Ben, is I think it's a really good-looking book. It is everything I hoped for with that. I really hoped for a visual book, cool outlines, some fun cartoonish images. Um, and I think that the publisher, Cider Mill Press, really came through on the illustrations. So I think people of all ages will like it. Well, there you have it. Tales from the Dugout, 1001 humorous, inspirational, and wild anecdotes from minor league baseball. We thank the author of this very entertaining book, Tim Haggerty, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Tim. Thank you all. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Once again, you can follow uh, Tim Haggerty on Twitter at TDHaggerty, H-A-G-E-R-T-Y. And uh, he is just the great. That was, I have, that's one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done on this show. And uh, now I got to read the book. Now I got to get it. I got a pre-order today. No, go ahead. <laughs> Sam and I are tripping over each other right now. <laughs> it's just praise Tim Haggerty, yeah. really, is what it comes down to. He's so great. Like, I feel like he told so many stories, but the fact that there's a thousand. More yeah, there, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, we're going to ruin all the good parts. He told yeah. us like eight stories. That means there's 993 more. That's fantastic. And they're all on that level, too. Yeah. Like, I know he was playing favorites with some of those. And um, I definitely want to investigate that lost fly ball. Oh, like, what yeah. do you guys actually think happened? If you had to actually have a theory. I don't know, but I believe I remember reading an article about that, which Tim must have written because I remember reading about that recently, because in addition to this book, you know, where the write ups are very short about each uh, about each weird little moment. um, You know, Tim has written a lot, uh, especially for the sporting news. Um, I still subscribe to a baseball digest and one, one week, uh, or one month I was looking through the issue and there was a Tim Haggerty story in there. So he does a lot of, you know, more longer form writing. And, yeah. uh, I think we're gonna have to consult his, probably his own article on, on that. And not that it comes to any definite conclusions and I don't have one myself for sure. Tyler, do you have a theory? How close is Jersey city to the Bermuda triangle? Pretty far. <laughs> okay. How far does the Bermuda Triangle's power reach? <laughs> Have we investigated that? I don't it, know. It, like, what could be a rational explanation? My only thought was like, I don't know, maybe a bird swooped down yeah. and thought it was a smaller bird and caught it. But like, you have to be a big bird. Like, I've got a baseball sitting on my desk. That's not a small object to just snare out of the sky. You can't like a, a ordinary crow is not flying by swooping in and snatching a baseball out of the air. That's got to be like a big bird of prey. It's got to be a raptor, if you will. I don't think they have a whole lot of like pterodactyls flying around Jersey City. No, like my thought might be a pelican. Ah. But pelicans don't really exist in Jersey to bring it back to True. New Orleans pelicans that we were talking about before. But like something that has a beak that can naturally catch a ball like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, though. I don't either. Yeah. Got just, caught up in a jet stream and just. Yeah. just kept on, kept on going somewhere. Shredded. Of, of yeah. Jet was flying from Newark over Jersey city. Yeah. Was, some things are just unknowable and perhaps we were not meant to understand. And I think we just have to embrace the unknowing and be okay with our uncertainty and yeah. uh, understand that life doesn't always have answers. Just a series of questions. So if you could go ahead and play the X-Files song underneath that, and we can just loop that over, over and over and over again. Ben, can you give us a little bit more uh, elaboration on that? I'll, I'll bring in some, I'll bring in some tunes behind it. <laughs> yeah. I think I said everything I need to say. That was very uh, profound and philosophical. And uh, I'm just going to end it on that high note because anything else I would say would be redundant. But I really do believe that I'm able, once I get going, to you know cut to the core of life's hardest questions and articulate them better than most or perhaps all. You know. He's not wrong, folks. 
Um, well, let's move on. Let's talk about some things that are going on in the world of minor league baseball. As of right now, there is a news item that comes with uh, a little bit of uh, surprise, and that is from the Northwest League, where there's going to be a new ballpark for the Hillsboro Hops. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, Hillsboro, that team just made its debut like last season. Not not really. It's been like a decade. Um, but th- it, this is somewhat surprising, Ben, that Hillsboro is uh, – setting the the groundwork for a new ballpark. Give us the whole situation there. Yeah, I mean, Hillsborough Hops debuted in 2013, uh, bringing minor league baseball back to the Portland market after a couple years without it. Actually, that Portland team, the Portland Beavers, went to Tucson and then went to El Paso. And Tim Haggerty, who we uh, just talked to, was the broadcaster for the Beavers in their final seasons, then Tucson, then El Paso. But there wasn't baseball in Portland for a couple of years. Hillsborough Hops debuted in 2013, bringing it back. And their ballpark, Ron Tonkin Field, you know, opened in 2013 in conjunction with the debut of the Hillsborough Hops. Uh, they were a short season team when they debuted. But in, starting in 2021, uh, the Northwest League shifted to high A and full season. So Ron Tonkin Field over the last couple of years has been getting more use than originally planned. Uh, but regardless, uh, to have a ballpark that opened 10 years ago, the team that plays in that ballpark to then say, we're getting a new ballpark. Uh, you know, that is surprising. And, uh, you know, in the team's press release, and I'm sure we'll cover this story more as the months and even years go on, this ballpark is scheduled to open in 2025. Um, but the team says in their press release, the original intent was to renovate Ron Tonkin Field to meet the new MLB uh, standards, the facility standards. And if you may recall, we had a whole episode on uh, facility standards and renovations just a few weeks back. It's something a lot of teams are doing right now, uh, renovating their ballparks uh, to meet the MLB facility requirements. But the hops, when they looked into it, they say, quote, after the completion of preliminary design and analysis, it was determined that it would be more cost effective to design and build a new ballpark. So that new ballpark, as opposed to spending a ton of money in renovations, they're just going for the entire new ballpark. Uh, Ron Tonkin Field is part of a larger athletic complex. um, So that will still continue to be used, but just not by the hops. And the new ballpark will be on the northwest side of that pre-existing athletic complex. So the team is more or less moving across the street. But now, as opposed to a relatively no-frills ballpark that was part of a larger complex, uh, now it's going to be a standalone facility. Um, and the hops are, are calling it you know, a year-round entertainment venue. So, of course, it's Ron Tonkin Field was not the kind of place where you'd really have many outside events besides baseball. But this one will be, I'm sure, much larger, uh, available for things uh, beyond the Hillsborough Hops playing baseball games. And, um, you know, obviously we'll bring the team up to speed with the facility requirements by building a whole new ballpark that will clearly be in line with them. So that ballpark is supposed to is now slated for 2025. Um, you know, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, no new minor league ballparks in 2023, no new minor league ballparks in 2024, at least unless I'm missing something that's going to be happening really fast. Uh, but in 2025, now we have Hillsborough, we have Salt Lake, we have places like Knoxville, Chattanooga, Richmond in the works. Um, you know, stadium timelines are notorious and that they are subject to change, but, um, it really does look that I think beginning in 2025, and almost certainly in 2026, 2027, we're going to see be seeing a lot of new ballparks after this uh, little drought period we're in right now. And speaking of relatively new ballparks, I mean, one of the most brand new on the minor league landscape and so far as that we've gotten new ballparks the last few years in, is in Amarillo. Uh, Amarillo is 
come out with a food themed identity is what I guess you would call it. Oh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> you have to call it that. Yes. It's just, it's the calf fries. And then I want you to describe what a calf fry is for anybody who does not live in the Amarillo area. Right. Calf fries, uh, also known as Rocky mountain oysters. Um, you know, I would say, let's. I let will say, side... I am taking exception to this other name, the Rocky Mountain you know, oysters. Rocky Mountain native. I am a little. What is this? Calf fries. What is this? What is this? So Come you on. believe? Come on. You believe they should be called Rocky Mountain oysters yeah. nationally? Absolutely, I do. We call it New York style pizza, don't we? Or New England clam chowder. New England clam chowder. If anybody tried to change it from New England clam chowder, I would fight them. So I, right. I feel you. I mean, I guess there is Manhattan chowder, but that's not the same it's kind. Not, it's not the same. It's not exactly. The same it's worse. Exactly. Maybe calf fry is different. Maybe they, it's like, this is the, <laughs> never mind. I'm not going <laughs> to. No, no, go ahead. Finish that <laughs> sentence. I'm not make any jokes <laughs> related to what this food item is. Right. Well, <laughs> what is a calf fry? I mean, we got to get to the heart of the matter. You'd think not by. not getting to the heart of the matter. <laughs> well, right. We got to get to the something <laughs> of the matter. You'd think that by clicking on the team's press release, they'd say a calf fry. They'd proudly say a calf fry is. Instead, there's a quote um, that just says, if you have lived in Texas or the Southwest for any amount of time, you know about calf fries. Kind of like, we don't want to write what it is. We're dancing around it. Calf fries are a castration byproduct that are then fried up, you know, coated with batter, fried up, and eaten as a Texas panhandle, a hearty Texas panhandle snack. So... They're going to be serving calf fries at the ballpark on these six select dates <clears throat> in which the Amarillo Sod Poodles play as the calf fries. Brandios did the logo set. Um, and you can see why the team maybe didn't you know, go too far in terms of explaining what it was or being too uh, over the top in their presentation of the logo. But it is one that gets people talking. And in that broad, general way, what I do love about minor league baseball is like, these promotions give you a uh, an inroads to learning about things that you might not have known of uh, at any point in time. Um, but, you know, I covered this in my newsletter, the Ben's Bizbeat newsletter, and I did point out that I've seen the not not they weren't called calf fries, but at a Missoula Osprey game a few years back, uh, they serve a platter called bats and balls, in which the fries are bats, <laughs> and you know, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, yeah. And uh, Boise Hawks, good, Missoula. yeah, Boise Hawks just had a Rocky Mountain Oysters uh, platter as well. And uh, I attended the very last Colorado Springs Sky Sox games, uh, you know, when they were a AAA game, they played their last season in 2018. And um, then the AAA team was going to be leaving and a Pioneer League team was coming in and they were having a name the team contest for that uh, incoming Pioneer League team, which eventually became the vibes. But one of the finalists was, yeah. Rocky Mountain Oysters as their actual all the time name, uh, the the Rocky Mountain Oysters, which they did not go with. But when I was in Colorado Springs in 2018, tied in with the fact that they could rename their team the Rocky Mountain Oysters, they were serving a Rocky Mountain Oyster burger, which was a hamburger topped with Rocky Mountain Oysters. So it is something that is rare on the minor league landscape, but certainly not uncommon. The calf fry terminology is, I think, more of a uh, Texas panhandle uh, sort of thing, um, or at least Texas in general. And uh, I don't think they've announced the dates yet in which they're playing as the calf fries, but they're going to be doing it six times in uh, 2023. And yeah, it's a they, half they decent did, chunk uh, of the home schedule. 
They did say uh, Saturday, April 15th will be their first one. Oh, you uh, got it. I did not Also, May 13th, June 5th, July 16th, August 4th, and August 31st. And on June 4th, if you want, you too can get a calf fries replica jersey if you're one of the first 1,500 fans in attendance. And that's just nuts. Um, guys, uh, <laughs> have either of you had – you haven't had, I'm assuming – well, uh, I did uh, once, and it wasn't at a ballpark. They were actually called lamb fries. Oh, um, interesting. I went to Oklahoma City for the first time to see what was then the Oklahoma City Redhawks. And I don't forget who told me about it, but, you know, they were like, oh, go to this place, the Cattleman's Cafe, you know, just kind of a iconic place to get lunch. And lamb fries were their specialty. And um, as well as, you know, a lot of steaks. It's cattle country in general. But I was just I I just said okay I'll try it and I ordered the lamb fries and I don't really remember much about them which I think speaks to the fact that if you didn't know what they were they yeah. just kind of taste like a breaded and fried yeah it's just like any type. breaded or fried meat yeah really. yeah um, so that kind of thing but then I got celiac disease and one of the great tragedies of that in going gluten free is that I could not then go on to eat calf fries or <laughs> Rocky Mountain oysters or prairie oysters or whatever. Uh, that is one of the great all. tragedies. Uh, truly one of the great. That's what I said to the doctor when I was diagnosed. You mean I can't eat calf fries? Like, are there <laughs> gluten free calf fries? How am I gonna do this? But and your doctor no, was I've like... been calf fry free, lamb fry free, Rocky Mountain oyster free. Uh, since 2012, they uh, they do sell them at Coors Field. Um, but I know I had a friend uh, visiting the country who had read about them. He wanted to get uh, a Rocky Mountain Oyster po' boy is the way they serve them at Coors Field. And I remember the amount of people that he asked at Coors Field who were like, oh, yeah, I think we have them. I think they're at like at this concession stand, whatever. Like there was one concession stand that had them. And it definitely gave me the. The impression of like, how long have these things been sitting here? Because <laughs> no one seems to know that this is even available here, and that's a little frightening. Um, but you know, calf fries. I guess it's uh, it's a rite of passage for for anybody who is uh, truly going to be an Amarillo Sod Poodles fan. Now you know you've got to you too have to become part of the uh, calf fries phenomenon. Um, Sam, would you try it? On a dare, like 15-year-old version of me would do anything for 20 bucks uh, or eat anything for 20 bucks. So, like, maybe um, if it was, like, for the podcast, yeah. see, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make plans on what ballparks I'm going to this year, and Amarillo might be on that list. And if I need to do something for the content, I would I would think about it. Okay. Um, but You heard it here well, first, Saudis. Sam's in. Make him uh, – Make him the finest platter of bull testicles that you can find. <laughs> Although I am a little confused that they call them calf fries. Does that mean that there is some sort of veal element here? Like, are these from calves? That's a little like weird a, to me. A bull calf, I think, is what it is. Um, yeah, but isn't a calf automatic? My my fiance's in the next room. Her dad literally owns a cattle ranch. I guess I should probably just ask her. But I don't. That's like, eh, I don't know. That's a little. That's getting a little weird. It's like the young ones. I don't want to. I mean, your area calls them oysters. What do you? What do you? Don't Sam. You got to gussy some things up to make people eat in hard times. You know, you're a miner. It's the 1880s. You're gonna eat anything, and somebody tells you, "It's like ah, here's a delicacy. It's an oyster." Yeah. <laughs> Euphemisms help us all get by. 
<laughs> ben, what else is going on? What's in the newsletter? What else is coming up? That's pretty much all that's going on. I mean, a lot of my time right now is finishing up the ballpark guide project and um and uh going through promo schedules. I've been trying to tweet out some of the best ones I've I've been finding. Um, but really a lot of it is getting uh all my proverbial ducks in the row for the for the start of the season. Uh the newsletter does come out every Thursday, the Ben's Biz Beat. You can subscribe on MILB.com or just uh, get in touch with me if you uh want that link. Um but I think that's about all I've got for now. I think a new ballpark and calf fries, that's just a heck of a one-two combo. That is. That's a big assignment. Um, you can keep up with all of it, of course, and you can sign up for the Ben's Biz Beat newsletter at MILB.com. And uh, that'll do it. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Todd. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once sparkled on the diamond. The others never even toiled in obscurity. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Marfa Cowboys. B. The Lexington Patriots. C. The Salinas Packers. It's good if you picked C. The Salinas Packers, who played the whole nine yards in eight California League seasons during the second half of the 20th century. Salinas, the seat of Monterey County, a major agricultural hub, the primary setting of John Steinbeck's East of Eden, and the home of the National Steinbeck Center, unboxed the Packers in 1954, five years after the sun set on the city's Sunset League entry, the Salinas Colts, who, thanks to a mid-season relocation, were enjoying Tijuana sunrises before the end of the 49 campaign. But the Cal League was in its heyday when the so-called Salad Bowl of the World dished up the Packers. Like many minor circuits, it underwent a rebirth after the war, and it was filled with both future and former major leaguers. In 54, Salinas' first season as the Packers, the team that finished directly ahead of them, the Channel City Oilers, featured Al Gianfrido who was a celebrity for the catch he made for the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1947 World Series, taking an extra base hit away from Joe DiMaggio. The Packers, however, had no stars of that caliber step into the box. The big three for Salinas, seventh out of eight teams that year, was Howie Goss, George Genovese, and Paul Pettit, each of whom played in the majors but who add up to a big league war of negative four, the equivalent of wet cardboard. 
Things weren't much more positive for the Packers until 1957, when they packaged up and carried home a Cal League title, thanks in part to the efforts of catcher William Gilmore and right-hander Chuck Estrada. Veda Pinson and the Visalia Redlegs ran away with just about the whole regular season, but the Packers had the postseason in the bag. But in 58, Salinas was lacking for salt, and the sweet times turned sour. The club finished a miserable 53-85 last place and disappeared when the Cal League contracted from 8 to 6 teams the next season. But the Packers appeared again for three seasons in the 70s, taking first place in 73, but failed to preserve their goods at the box office. And that's how the Packers were shipped off. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams had an odd appetite in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Battle Creek No Meats. B. The Longview Cannibals. C. The Montpelier Maple Suckers. Want to know the answer? Open wide. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is getting ready for St. Patty's Day, and I've got to hide his bagpipes. Saying goodbye on this week's episode of the show before the show podcast. Uh, we are coming up real quickly on minor league baseball opening day. And with that very first episode in the month of April will be our fan centric episode. We've already gotten emails from tons of people uh, explaining their love for the show before the show podcast. Obviously. I mean, who doesn't uh, as well as just from minor league baseball in general, and you can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. Uh, give us your story of how you found the podcast, um, some of your favorite moments, some things you love about minor league baseball, all of that. Um, and also, what stuff you would make Sam Dykstra eat for $20. What is your regional delicacy that I could visit and have? <laughs> what you gross know, thing could Sam devour? Yeah, uh, let's or just fun thing. It could be yeah. a nice thing. You know, like Ben and I were talking earlier this week. Norfolk announced a uh, a new food based identity for the, the year based on the orange crush. Right, the squeezers, the squeezers, the squeezers, which is just like a nice, delightful alcoholic drink. I would try that for twenty dollars. We don't yeah, have I'm to into that. The, the weird stuff. No, you're not going to get paid to have delicious stuff, Sam. That's not how this works. That's I said I would do anything for twenty dollars. That's my <laughs> limit here. Or that's my floor. Sam's like, yeah, I mean, if you want to give me $20 and delicious slices of pizza, I'd be I'd be fine with that. That's not how this works. Don't get good stuff in compensation for money. The money is in exchange for eating weird stuff. Okay, Don Draper. That's what the money is for. <laughs> that's what the money is for. Uh, but get in touch with this podcast at MILB.com. And uh, we're really excited. We're going to nail those down um, and do those interviews and uh, get a fan-centric episode of this uh, friendly minor league baseball podcast, because we are coming up on 400 episodes of this show real soon, um, which is super cool. So excited to get that to you. And uh, for those dudes in New York City, Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week. Next week.